Uh, welcome, Ehoama. No mai harimai. Thank you for being here. Kia ora koutou katoa. Uh, what a wonderful occasion this is, and how great, given this strange pandemic year, that it's even happening at all. This is Brave Worlds, plural, because he poa tomatero. Bravery has many resting places. We are so delighted to have you all here. Thank you for coming. I hope you're all doing okay, although some of you will have fared better than others, and there will be people here for whom every tomorrow of late has been an act of will and strength and bravery. For some of you, and perhaps many, the earthquakes in their aftermath rudely and ungratefully demand, demanded a kind of courage that you did not know you contained. And I think often of Imam Jamal Fuda at Hagley Park, the first Friday after that terrible, terrible day, and that extraordinary sentence I will never, ever forget hearing him say, we are brokenhearted, but we are not broken. Bravery as love, bravery as decency and generosity, bravery as faith. Now, I've no idea what our glorious writers are talking about tonight, but I know that even letting us into themselves, confiding in us, trusting us to listen and to understand will be itself a form of bravery. Being true in the face of others is brave, so I want to thank them. Thank you, writers. And I want to say we are here for your words, the point Rachel was making, and we are here because of your words. There won't be anyone here tonight in this room, I am quite sure, that hasn't read at least one of you, and many of you will have read more, and some beautiful souls amongst us will have read you all. <laughs> and that's why we're here tonight, because we know who you are. And as for you, dear word attendees, who bought tickets for this event so fast that it was almost immediately a sellout, thank you. Although, to be frank, who knows what you're in for? It may be an act of bravery to have come. <laughs> Normally, gala evenings involve red carpets and celebrities being asked who they're wearing and Ricky Gervais pretending to bite the hand that feeds. <laughs> you, on the other hand, are possibly facing an evening of existential angst. <laughs> but then who doesn't want to examine life through the words of writers like our really special six guests tonight? their ways of seeing, their big hearts. We all hate the winter southerly, yes, but don't we know we're alive when we're standing in it? So, everyone, welcome. The theme, as we know, is brave worlds, courage, however people want to interpret that. And uh, I will introduce each writer before they speak, beginning with Elizabeth Knotts. Sometimes when I read Elizabeth Knotts, I circle the page like our cat Peggy circles her favourite cushion. Normally when I read, I read, and normally when Peggy sits, she sits. But there are writers for whom the words perform such particular magic that reading them becomes both a macro and micro treat, both at once. Here is the story, and I do want to know what happens next, yes, but not before I read this page again and stop for a moment or two and gaze off to that hidden place in the middle distance of every room where something wonderful is read and think to myself, how did she do that? <laughs> Of course, we all know that about Elizabeth Knox. There'll be hardly anyone here tonight who hasn't read her and paused while reading her and thought to appropriate the title of Bill Manhar's wonderful new collection, Wow. And I suspect our collective delight at the slate review of the absolute book was heartfelt evidence of that. Cultural cringe, possibly, yes, we love it when foreigners really notice one of us. But way more importantly than that, it was because slate reviewed Elizabeth Knox with such joy 
And we don't comfortably do that kind of joy in New Zealand because people might look at us and our fly might be undone. <laughs> and Slate was right. When I was finished with the absolute book Dan Coas wrote, I wanted everyone to read it so I could discuss it with them. Yes, me too. And hence so many of, hence so many of us felt that way about Elizabeth Knox before. I suspect for many of us starting two decades ago with The Vintner's Luck. Do you remember the way we were suddenly all reading it? The way we all felt that experience of continuous awe that Slate describes. And don't we all have our other favourites? Perhaps in some cases less widely read for me, it's Billy's Kiss, which I love for the story, for the speedway slam of its genre demolition, and for all it manages to do at once. So here she is at Word Christchurch, world famous not only in New Zealand, companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit Arts Foundation Laureate, beloved and acclaimed writer, a writer of worlds bravely. Please welcome Elizabeth Knox. That was very much the nicest introduction I've ever had. I was given a very nice introduction to John years ago because I, I, I was, used to have endless conversations with his father, Jim, who used to come into the museum shop and talk to me and whoever I was working with about whatever the hell. And he kept talking about his son, of whom he was enormously proud. And at some point he produced this, I think you were 18 or something at the time, and I would have been 24, 25. And, and, and there was this tall thing, you know, tall, shy thing, who was clearly kind of like trying to bask in the aura of the love and step out of the aura of the love. And I've just, I was always just very, very deeply impressed by that affection. That was my first recommendation to John. So yeah, I just thought I'd say that. Because, course, you know, I'm old. So, you know, we get all nostalgic and sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, right. Um, I've sort of taken this as not as bravery but as courage. I don't think there's a distinction, but courage is the thing that I think of. So, <clears throat> courage. It's a thing I find myself saying to young friends discouraged by reversals. When they're talking about confidence, how great it will be to have more. Confidence is the idea we've been offered, as if life is all first things. I say, never mind confidence, it comes and goes and can't be summoned. The thing you'll need, no matter how well you start or how lucky you are, is courage. Not just for yourself, but to be at all useful. You need courage just to live. For the past little while, I've been spending time with a friend who has the kind of cancer with bad statistics. Eleven months ago, we'd crouched together on the top terrace of her garden, brushing our fingers through the leaves of the strawberry plants, feeling for the fruit. Five months ago, she'd be telling me about her treatment, or we'd chat with the district nurse who was changing the dressing on a drain, about COVID, or the National Party's hot date night outfit changes of leadership. <laughs> Three months, sometime in the course of treatment, into the course of treatment, the conversation has slowed. Her words are stepping stones and some are underwater. We reminisce about family picnics in Akaterawa, 
how we found the stream overflowing and looking down at the drowned pasture was like gazing into another world where the water was shining air. Are any streams near pasture now ever that clear, she wonders? Her husband appears with her frothed milk and my coffee, and with both of them in the room, I asked after her father. Her father spoke at my father's funeral, at my mother's. My mother visited hers in the month she was dying. She and her husband don't have kids, but she has this nuggety, active 96-year-old who remembers training as a pilot in the war and being kept back to train more pilots while his brother went off on the bombers. We have a hard time now getting him off his childhood, my friend tells me. I've only had 10 minutes on how he met mum. It was her mum and my dad who met first, helping another tramper across a swollen river. They just happened to arrive at the bank together. I'm thinking about the luck, good and bad, at arriving at things together. I'm thinking about constancy. I bear my friend company, but we're also with her mother and father, my mother and father, their friends, and our cats, those characters, the long-haired ginger kitten her parents gave mine when Dad was deep in mourning for another cat, their Burmese who'd come along on the picnics and let off her harness would stalk the cows. None of this takes courage. I'm no more or less afraid of other people's suffering than anyone else's. Because isn't that what scares us most, the suffering of those we love? I just hope around the edges of her hope, with all her friends, for good news about the immunotherapy, for better returns on the chemo. And if it helps with the hope and the hard slog, she can imagine me sitting with her father as often as I'm sitting with her, listening to his stories spooling back to their core of the tea plantation and the dog called Bongo and the mother who bolted. I'll listen for his best friends, my mother and father, for her mother and for her. Courage doesn't come into it. When my father had his heart attack and was lying in the cardio ward, while my younger sister tried to pack off our exhausted mother and escort her home on the train, I watched a nurse come in, pick up the bag attached to the catheter, look at its scant blood-tinged contents and shake her head. I didn't call this to my family's attention. I just let them go off. I settled in until, I don't know what it was, some question he wasn't able to answer about pain, or pain, my touch too heavy on his puffy hand, but he shouted at me to go away, to leave him alone, and I fled, only as far as the other side of a door where I paused for maybe 15 minutes, calming my own heart, meaning to go back in. But I had a failure of courage. I was hungry. I wanted dinner and a glass of wine and to hug my husband and son and the three new cats. So I went home just for that, the duration of that. An hour later they called me to say he was asking for me. Where's my daughter? When I got there, he wasn't conscious anymore 
and only squeezed my hand a few times as I sang to him. Matthew 26:40, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep. What could ye not watch with me one hour? For a couple of years before I watched the police carry my older sister out of her house, I used to fake casually insist my younger sister, when she was back from Australia, make her visit alone. It'll be nice for you to have a conversation without me there. But the point was to have my younger sister report and have to formulate thoughts. I'd say, no one ever believes me when I try to tell them. This is a report. The window frames have pouting mouths of split wood where the rain comes in. And the whole window seat is covered in plastic yogurt containers to catch the drips. The toilet will flush, our older sister says, says but only if no one puts paper down it. Vines have grown over the kitchen windows. The only clean thing in the house is the cat. She's been trying to reread her favorite books, my younger sister says, but someone has come into the house and replaced them with books that only look like them. I asked her whether the book said something different, and she got that look that says, she knows you're asking a question whose answer you already know because perhaps you're behind it. The falsified favorite books, the dying trees, the discontinuation of five cent pieces to make people poorer. I'd be refraining from nodding in satisfaction at my younger sister's distress, but not guilty because how else could I discuss what might be done unless she saw it and then saw it again when she had to put it into words. But she's not finished, of course. Apparently our older sister's husband won't let her use more than one rubbish bag, so she has to walk around the neighbourhood at night finding skips. <laughs> Can that be true? My younger sister asks. She also told me the girl's dentist bills aren't paid and she's getting phone calls about it and he who has the checkbook, won't pay because one, the dentist was her idea, and two, he'll pay as late as possible so the bunny will earn more interest in his account, not the dentist's. <laughs> How do we know whether that's true, my sister says, with the poison trees and the changed books? How can we know that's true? I did do something about this and I watched the police carry my older sister out of the house. I visited her on the ward even after she hit me. And for a long time, the story had a happy ending. Yes, she's maybe still creeping around the neighborhood after dark to find a skip, but she had the cat tramping clubs, over 65s walking group, and kindly older women who were her friends. I've been writing about this, in the course of writing about my mother, and sometimes have considered the courage it took to be the one who filled out the forms and talked to people, explained, when others more closely concerned were too afraid, or too worn down, or unlike me, couldn't remember her as a child, with all that life and fancy and appetite, so couldn't hope to see her again, hope for something better for her, 
But now, though she's still on the pills that work, she won't leave the house to see the doctor to talk about pills that might work better. And I waited for my sister from Sydney, not so that she could see it and have to describe it, but because I was too afraid to go there alone. The room is a cave of ashes. The sun is coming in through watermarks of white mould, and everything is grey or glossy with grease. Her hands shake. She's wearing socks like flapping sleeves. Her toenails tear them, she says. I'm making feeble queries, as if indignation is a door I can walk through. Does your doctor renew your prescription without even seeing you? Meanwhile, my younger sister gets her to take off her socks and tenderly tries to trim the nails curling over the ends of her toes. What do the girls say I persist? The daughters, in their 30s now, I fish. What's your doctor's name? But she won't tell us. She remembers being carried out of the house. She won't leave the house, even to look for the cat, the only clean thing, who made a break for it a few weeks back. My husband looked, she says, till it was his bedtime. She wouldn't even go into the backyard to call, although telling it, she's in tears of remembered fear. My younger sister goes home. One of the daughter's first reactions when asked to consider what might be done is to lean against her husband and tremble. My younger sister says, I literally cannot come home, so the ball's in your court. But there's no regrouping. There's no one to ask. There's her husband making promises to talk to her doctor, and then nothing, and the privacy laws. There's no one to take my call. And so, in the end, there's just this, my own failure of courage, my could ye not watch one hour, and it is the only thing to offer me its cold hand and lead me out of the cave of ashes. Thank you. of stepping stones and some are underwater. Boy, that was fantastic. Thank you. And I, I do, I really want to thank you for the generosity of sharing that with us. Um, our next writer on this gala night, the celebration of words and courage, the courage of our writers, and writing worlds into being or reflecting on worlds or holding them to account is Muhammad Hassan. Muhammad's new poetry collection National Anthem was launched last night. I wasn't there because I only flew down today, but I've had it in manuscript form for a few weeks now. Um, Ahmed is my friend. We were colleagues at RNZ too. And when friends ask you to read things, you feel excitement, yes, and hope, yes, but maybe also a tender trepidation in case the arrow lands with a thud rather than a thwack. But this is a fantastic collection, Muhammad. Timely, yes, but so much more than that. At times, as in the poem Bury Me, in its unflinching mining of biography, and in the cast of parents, grandparents, uncles, the childhood humiliations, it reminds me a little of Robert Lowell. 
And uh, the poem John Lennon begins, people talk about John Lennon like he was God, but he never spoke to me, with its shades of public enemies fight the power. And it is the first time in history I've read a poetry book that reminds me of uh, Robert Lowell and Chuck D simultaneously. It's like, go Muhammad. And then there's Muhammad's truth-telling from which none of us are exempt, including himself. Office party ends. Here's what none of the pamphlets at the University Health Clinic tell you. The path of least resistance is self-loathing. You can't see your value when the lights are out. If you hold everyone at arm's length, you never have to apologise or ask for help. That is tough writing. And then there is otherness, the tyranny of it, the way it degrades and demeans and diminishes and strips us of what we share. Muhammad subverts that too. And suddenly the monsters are not them but us, that achingly vile polarity. The woman who told his mother to get the hell back to where she came from in the Milford Mall car park. And we know that meanness, don't we? That's our side of the family. And we well know too the murderous hate that that enmity can lead to. So, Muhammad, it really thrills me to tell you I love your book, and it thrills me to welcome you and your words and your worlds and your bravery to word. Oh, John. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that, my friend. My act of courage today is to speak on this lantern after Elizabeth Knox. Kia ora, assalamu alaikum. My name is Muhammad Hassan, and uh, I uh, wanted to share with you an insight into my community um, over the course of several decades. When my dad first arrived in New Zealand in 1996, he stayed in a spare room belonging to an elderly Egyptian couple for three months. In that time, Nazli and Abdul Ghani became his adopted parents in this foreign country. Auntie Nazli was a sprightly matriarch, darting in and out of rooms mid-conversation, waving her arms wildly and talking to anyone who would enter her house like a long-lost family member. Once, while hosting us and our visiting grandfather for dinner, she disappeared suddenly from view for half an hour and returned with a dusty album from another era. She perched herself in the middle of the room and declared she had found the distant relative that linked our two families together. Her husband, Giddu Abdel Ghani, was once an Air Force pilot who fought in the Arab-Israeli War in 1967, but now sat quietly in his armchair, gleefully content with letting his matriarch fill the room. Their home was a sun for which the rest of us new migrants revolved around. On most weekends, they'd hold big dinners with open doors. Whenever they heard a new family had arrived in the country, they would reach out to them to welcome them, ask them what they need, feed them, hook them up with others in the community who could help. My father, then a 34-year-old electrical engineer who may as well have been an astronaut on a mission to Mars seeking life and economic opportunity, found in them a sense of home, a familiar quiet in the chaotic uncertainty of migration. He became especially close to their oldest son, Ale, who married a Samoan woman named Gladys, who everybody adored, and named his firstborn daughter the first Samoan Egyptian I had ever met, and possibly the <laughs> first there was ever in the world. He named her Nazli after his mother. They would have two more children, Tafa and Maryam, and all three of them would become doctors. I don't know if it was because there were no other Egyptians when they first arrived, 
one son at a time, first in the late 70s and then early 80s, or because they consciously wanted to plant roots in this country, but the circumference of their family stretched and grew. Uncle Ahmed married into a Pakeha family in the 80s, then later after a divorce to a Singaporean one. The next two also married Pakeha women, then it was Uncle Ale and Auntie Gladys, the Samoan Egyptians, and then Uncle Amr, whose partner was Maori. At family gatherings, the feathers falling from the wings of their children and aunties and mother-in-laws and sisters and adopted kin like my father and my mother would pile up in the living room in the kitchen in the backyard. Glistening white feathers would float out through the window on a summer breeze around the Titoki trees and up the streets until they reached Apia and London and Singapore and Cairo and Tauranga. Last Monday, I drove to a small mosque near Auckland Airport where the rest of my community had gathered to pray over Auntie Nuzli before she would be buried. At the Manaka Memorial Gardens, we took turns shoveling dirt, her five sons now in their 50s and 60s overcome by uncharacteristic silence. I watched as one by one, feathers floated down from the air and began collecting at the foot of her grave. Dozens of children who once danced and dotted around the bones of her home, now men and women with families and children and careers, their infants cradled in their arms as they laughed with cousins they hadn't seen in months. Young Nasli, the granddaughter, talked excitedly about trying to raise her two children between hospital shifts and then asked if we were coming over later for food with everyone else. My dad stood on the periphery, overcome with an emotion I had never seen in him before. His words trapped in his throat, his hat lowered to hide his eyes. After Giddu's death a few years ago, Auntie Nasli was the last paternal figure in his life. And between a rush of memories, he must have felt a strange loneliness seeping in. When the grave was filled, our local Imam, Sheikh Rafat, gathered us closer and told us that what we perceive as a dark hole in the ground, triumphed by dirt, was just a portal into another world. One that Auntie Nasli was now traversing alone left with the sum of her short life on this earth and the numerous acts of kindness and connection she had provided for nearly everyone that stood with us that day. I thought about this community she had built. I thought about what it meant for me, the shelter it had provided, and I asked myself what I have offered in return. On the drive back from the cemetery, my brother tells me it is so strange how desensitized we've become to burials. I tell him it's a healthy thing, to be comfortable with death and reflect on it the way that Islam teaches us to. But I know what he really means. Like me, he's remembering those four days in March last year here in Christchurch where we buried 51 people from our community. Like dozens of other Muslims, my brother had flown down from Auckland to help. All of the childhood friends I'd met at gatherings like the ones at Auntie Nazi's house were there. Day by day, they drove to the cemetery and donned fluorescent vests to usher the mourners around a surreal sight. Fifty-one holes dug six feet deep, aligned side by side in five rows. Over a makeshift speaker system, another childhood friend, Bilal, read out each name and called the family to come forward. A group of six or seven lifted up the body and walked it a hundred meters through the crowd until it reached its home. The opening passage of the Quran was read out, and then we lined up heaped amount of dirt in our hands and gently threw it in. Then my brother motioned people to make way before Bilal read out another name and the ceremony began again. From Tuesday until Friday, for five hours at a time, this is all we did. 
In the morning, we would stand with the bodies laid out in front of us and pray the funeral prayer. In the evening, we would visit the families, Sheikh Rafat out in front, telling stories about his memories of each of the departed and describing in vivid color the journey they were now on. On Friday afternoon, as the final body was lowered into the ground, everyone on site broke down together. A week of levy tears finally allowed to flood. Maybe it's a sign of trauma to connect seemingly disconnected memories. The natural death of an elderly matriarch and the unnatural death of a congregation. But in times of distress, our memories tend to collapse on top of each other. We look for patterns in the chaos to help us make sense. All of my conversations in New Zealand now inevitably return to Christchurch. It is like a glitch in time, a rupture in the VHS film that keeps replaying a loop of a memory. My brother tells me on the drive home he avoids attending Friday prayers now, that he can't bring himself to take his two sons to the mosque, that he doesn't feel like he can protect them there. In the aftermath of March 15, attacks against the Muslim community have not stopped. Several groups, including the Islamic Women's Council, have been the subjects of targeted campaigns of hate. A study by the University of Auckland says Islamophobic abuse has risen since March 15 by 1,300%. When I walk into a mosque on Friday, a small part of my brain is imagining worst-case scenarios. A stranger with ill intentions entering through the doors as our backs are bowed in prayer. A driver caught in a moment of rage who swerves onto a footpath as we're leaving to return to our lives, or a simple hateful word hurled from a speeding car that will leave us on edge for the rest of the day. I've spent the better part of 25 years waiting for someone to hand me a certificate that tells me that I am the same as everyone else, that promises safety and warmth to my two young nephews, dancing around our feet in their uncomplicated joy. This is not the world that I want them to inherit. After March, I asked myself what this country means to me and what I mean to this country. I suppose I'm still trying to figure that out. But an image is beginning to form in my head. A belonging is a state of being. It is also a verb, a doing thing, an act of resistance. If I am to belong, then I must will it for myself. If my nephews are to belong, then it is on me to build for them the country that can hold them a house through which they can dance and sing their wings outstretched and soaring. At the sentencing hearing in August, a man who looks an awful lot like my father speaks from his soul. He says, my brothers and sisters suffered, but we are stronger than ever before. His name is Mirwais Waziri, and he is a national hero. A woman who looks an awful lot like my sister speaks through anger and beauty and pain. She says, in the end, love will always win that the events of March 15 have woven us a thread that is far more integral in the fabric of New Zealand society than ever before. Her name is Sara Qasim, and she is a national hero. Four days ago, I stood at the foot of Auntie Nazli's grave and looked around in awe at the world she had created, the seeds she had sown, planted and nurtured for more than six decades, and I saw a new New Zealand that sprung forth into life a soft-spoken one that willed itself into being, that needed no one's approval or acceptance. 
its wings unfurling under a perfect blue sky, its gentle feathers falling all around us, shimmering in the infant glow of a sun that climbs higher and higher, lifts its head from an early grave and floats up and up and up into the heavens, a matriarch ascending, a guiding light that illuminates us all, this tiny community of ours shining with purpose, a commitment to grow, to resist, to hope, and dare I say it, to belong. I do want to reflect on the generosity of that, Mohammed, and on the generosity of that, Elizabeth, and on how much of yourselves you gave. It's hard to respond because we're still learning this stuff from the outside. But it reminds me of, of a story that I tell all the time about Guled, Guled Meyer. And I was doing a tiny little event similar to this in Auckland the Wednesday before the Friday. And it, I, don't, I can't even remember what it was about. So much has happened since. But Guled talked about the sense of being the other. And he said he worries about the Muslim community in New Zealand. And he worries about his nephews and nieces. And he fears that something will happen to them. And I sat there shocked by this, thinking, surely not, surely not, surely not, 48 hours later. So when you talk and I hear this room of 300 people listen, 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 it's a fantastic thing. So thank you, Mohammed, and thank you, Room. It was wonderful. I do, I do want to say, I mean, that, that was a kind of, that was a, that was a game of two halves, wasn't it, there? that moment's piece, but the, but the beautiful observational stuff, that lovely eye for people and their behaviour and the way they talk, their cadences and stuff, it's very much in here. Um, Becky Manuatu. Uh, sometimes books are contagious, like music, like the way a song or an album takes off and everywhere you go, people are listening to it and it becomes the shared music of that time and you sing it together. Owe was like that early this year. Everyone I knew was reading a Becky Manawatu, Becky Manawatu. It was that book. And people spoke of it with genuine gratitude as if it were a gift to them, although we were all Googling Becky Manawatu like crazy so we could pretend we'd known about her for some time now. <laughs> oh, yes, Becky Manawatu, of course. Owe <laughs> is a stunning book, vivid and human and sad and heartbreaking and hopeful. It takes a special kind of writer to weave that tapestry and to not leave the weight of the weaving on the page. Many people I know, me amongst them, read it urgently as if receiving a 111 call. So great was our fear and love for and of its characters. So great was our need to know. Brave worlds, the Scala evening is called, and there are so many in no way. Going on is brave. The audacity of hope is brave. Love is brave. It's the stuff Muhammad was just talking about. And Becky, holding up your own history, a real human loss in the form of a 10-year-old boy and making something so good 
dedicated to that boy that will endure beyond the capacity we have to break things. That is brave. Owe is a great New Zealand novel. And its author, who was Naipahu, is here with us tonight in Ototahi. And we are so delighted to be with you in your home. Tenakwe, kia ora, rawa atu. It is such a pleasure to welcome you, Becky Manawatu. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Biki Manawatua hau, ko kaitahu, ka te mamoe a waitaha ka iwi, no mai hare mai, maori ora ki te whare. I started writing this about ten days ago, despite being given months. <laughs> <laughs> there is a reason it looked, took me so long. I thought of the people I would be sharing the stage with, writers such as Witi Ehemaira and Elizabeth Knox, whose names have been with me since I first hoped I might follow a similar path, the stunning bravery of Beirut's Buchani, and now new names, new friends to me, Mohammed Hassan and Laura Jean McKay. I thought of Ototahi. I thought of you all here tonight and the brave stories each of you might be sitting with in a city where people have had to be very brave in the face of ignorance and cowardice, in the face of murder and destruction, ka aroha kia koutou. Suffice to say, I felt a bit silly when I searched my own memories for braveness. It feels to me the bravest and most humbling thing I've done is to be up here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought about calling in sick on it. <laughs> To write this, I had to stop comparing myself to my co-speakers and I stopped thinking about meeting John Campbell. <laughs> I decided to flip it. If I don't feel like I am brave, maybe share when I wasn't, and why. The ability to be brave is given by mana. That born with mana we get, for me that mana came with being born to an Irish mother and a Māori Pākehā father. The mana that came with being born a moko of a Naitahu man, Richard Wixon, who was even awarded a medal for bravery in World War II. He survived that war, but died very young. The mana of being born the moko of a Pākehā woman, Doreen Wixon, who would lose her husband far too soon, but go on to live completely independent, even driving until age 90. The mana of being born the moko of an Irishman, Cyril Duggan, who would survive losing two sons to drug overdoses, my uncle Terry and uncle Glenn, a grandchild to murder, my cousin Glenbo, and another to suicide. Born the moko of Elsa Dawn, who I never met, my granny who raised seven children, including my mother, in very hard times. Such hard times she didn't even tell many of them their birthday for a long time because she was afraid she wouldn't always be able to make the day special. There is also the mana we are given. My sisters spoon-fed me mana from birth. Being almost ten years younger than them, they carried me around on their hips and made me feel utterly safe and happy and protected. As I grew, they talked to me about my whakapapa. No one ever messed with me or my brother because of them, and it made me increasingly bold. From my mum, who encouraged me to write, and my dad, who took me to sea with him often as a kid when he was the skipper of a boat. 
even gave me one of my first jobs, cooking for crew on scampi trips. My children, well, it's watching them grow into the beautiful, kind humans they are that makes me feel mana. My husband slaps it on me like it's tea sauce and I'm two scoops of Tony's chips. <laughs> Best chips in Westport. Great if you've got a wee case of the munchies. <laughs> there is the mana that comes from the group shared as a community. <clears throat> in Tiao Māori, a good example would be at the marae. As we lived far from our marae growing up and my dad had not connected to it, I had to think about how I best understand this mana. Not sure if I have it right, but I decided Waimangaroa Primary School was one place I shared in collective mana. To encapsulate the school, I'll share this. Through the cold months, the parents were asked to donate homemade soup. Us kids could order it by the cup for about 50 cents and have a slice of toast for about 10 cents a pop. I looked forward to the cold months. Most of us would sit together in a classroom at our desks, bunched into islands, and would eat. There is something about a group of kids eating the same thing together that is really connecting. Super side, I can tell you, I gained mana for feeling smart there. How quickly it was swiped from me, stepping onto the next rung on the ladder of our education system. The night before I was to go to the local high school for a school streaming test, I checked my pencil case to make sure I had everything I needed. Remember feeling it was important to get a good night's sleep, setting the alarm earlier than usual to eat some wheat bix have a shower and go through the contents of the pencil case once more. Maybe do some of those figure eight things with my thumb, those brain exercises. Remembered a deep certainty I'd do well at the test which would label us, and we all knew what the labels were used by our peers. We would either be brainy, average, or dumb. Remember arriving to the hall at Buller High, hardly ever having been there before. Remember looking at the desks set apart from each other, separate islands, made my stomach freeze, crave hot soup. Remember sitting up in my seat, pretty sure I'd do okay. Had a little corridor with myself about how I should go slow, take my time on each answer. Did not pay attention to the ticking clock. Wave of anxiety cut through me when an adult in the room said just five minutes left. I'm not entirely sure, but my recollection is I was just over halfway through. When time was called, I hadn't completed it and knew, knew deep down I hadn't done as well as I expected. Had not factored into the thing, time into the thing, so focused on be, being careful, forgot also, be fast, like it's a race. Had me a tonguey when I learned my label. My brain function was henceforth, or at least until proved otherwise, to be classed as average. <laughs> Embarrassed to say I did not show up the first day at Buller High with the intention to prove them wrong. I thought if they, they think I'm average, I'll be average. I was not brave. With diminished mana dosed up on other things more suited to average brain function, those things included dopamine hits via attention from boys, drinking, smoking, and not attending the institution where my brain function had been labelled as average as frequently as was required. <laughs> Can't say those things wouldn't have happened anyway because I was a teenager, but I do know they happened more easily. It is not breaking news that streaming in schools is damaging. 
There is already much research to back that up. The research also says it's racist, like our cannabis laws. The study of 70,000 Māori learners said Māori were disproportionately represented in low ability classes and interviews with Māori students <coughs> showed streaming had a negative impact on their lives. Streaming does remain a practice in schools. Some schools have done away with it and others haven't. And that's enough to piss me off <laughs> because it is an example of how poorly mana can be handled by structures built to help just one, and there are many more examples like this. I am Pākehā, but I am also Māori, and I was very much a Māori kōtero when I sat in my chair ready to take that test because I believed it was another stroke propelling me forward in the waka to become my ancestors' wildest dreams. It didn't sit well with me to instead feel mana stripped away and a label slapped on my brain. It was straight up rude, to be honest. And that's what makes it racist, that mishandling, misunderstanding and minimising of mana. And perhaps that it forces individualistic values on tamariki for whom such values might just seem average. Well, if we're into name calling, dumb, like our cannabis laws. <laughs> <laughs> the real yuck happens when people get stuck believing such rubbish too long because they are told lies like this more often more often than I was. The demonstrative stripping of mana repeated, repeated it enough and it might make a person lose footing on their whenua, lose touch with the mana that comes from their whakapapa, the people who love and cherish them and their community. Like for example, if someone was streamed and labelled dumb and then later got caught with some weed and labelled a criminal. Okay, I think I've made my point. I probably mm. need to give up there. <laughs> Um, I left high school with little more than school certs, a mark scraped together in sixth and seventh form and a signed yearbook. In the yearbook, the head boy had written that he reckoned he would buy my novel one day. Better than a ministry endorsement, I thought, a totoko in the form of a few words from one of my mates. I hope he's bought it now. <laughs> but imagine the increased and beautiful braveness Morangatahi might walk in the world with on their whenua with, if mana was handled with manaki, not dumb colonising practices. Toi tu te kupu, toi tu te mana, toi tu te whenua. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa.